Prior to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. The Code Mesh 2017 schedule is now live. With 40 speakers, including 4 keynotes, there is a talk at Code Mesh 2017 for everyone. Find out what you should be developing for the future, network with top professionals, and get inspired. Speakers from Facebook, Microsoft, Starbucks, CERN, Harvard, Cambridge University, and the Imperial College of London, to name just a few. For more details and register, visit www.codemesh.io. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans on February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to Closure Sync, that's closure, S-Y-N-C, dot com to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. 2018 Lambda Days Call for Papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a chance to join Jose Valim, Feline Hermans, Philip Wadler, Heather Miller, and others on stage in February. The Call for Talks is open to October 30th, and a research track is available as well. And that is less than a week, so make sure to get your submissions in. The early bird tickets have sold out, but a new batch of tickets for the conference will start on November 1st. For more information, to submit your talk proposal, and your register, visit www.lambdadays.org. Bob 2018 is in Berlin, Germany, on February 23, 2018. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. The call for contributions is open and runs until October 29th. That is just under a week left. Bob has speaker grants and travel support and a wide variety of other options to support groups underrepresented in tech. For more information, to register, and to submit your proposal, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin, Germany. More information on Closure D can be found at closured.de. And cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are available. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to share your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to share your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Mike Sperber. Mike, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so currently I'm CEO of a software company in Germany, near, near Stuttgart in South Germany. We're essentially a software consultancy, but we also do a lot. We do mostly project development, and, and what makes us special is we do it all using functional languages across a wide variety of fields. We have social pedagogy, and we have semiconductor fabrication, and we have a whole bunch of things in between. In a former life, I was a researcher and teacher here at the university in Tübingen, and um, also taught a lot of functional programming. And I've also done a lot of research and teaching functional programming, so I've tried to carry that over into the commercial field. So if you had experience as a teacher, but you've also done a lot of software, how did you first get exposed to software? Was that pre-teaching? Was that after teaching? What was that evolution that got you first into software? And we'll figure out the timeline around all this stuff. So I think I got into software when I was like 13 years old, when my dad bought me an Apple II and kind of figured that I would do something with that. And I, I was never much interested in video games or word processing or any of that stuff. So I pretty much started programming right away. So both my parents were high school and elementary teachers, respectively. So I think sort of the teaching gene, teaching kind of came naturally to me. So I was interested in teaching very early on. So I spent a year as an exchange student as a high school junior. And that was my first opportunity to sort of do actual official teaching is in, in that they actually let me teach an AP computer science course. And that was in 1987. And in, in one way or another, I think I've been doing software development, but I've, I've usually had people to teach to since then. So I guess it's been 30 years now this year. <laughs> and if you've been teaching, 
were you going in and teaching with a focus on software or teaching with a focus on someone else, somewhere else and playing with software? Or were you going with software with a focus on teaching? So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that question one way or another, right? So my teaching has always been about programming as opposed to other aspects of computing. But of course, I always wanted to teach things that I've been doing myself. So I guess, yeah, if you really wanted to sort of sort out the chicken and egg thing, it, it was the software that came first. Okay, and I was just trying to figure out where that focus was, if that was software was playing and teaching was the focus or wanting to teach what you're learning. So yeah. again, those two things can be tied together or they can be distinct and then people find out one path versus another. So as you start getting into software, you're playing with it, you start enjoying teaching it. Was that, and what I'm leading up to is as you start getting into software more and more, you're starting to take software courses. So what was the journey into different software languages, different playing around as you eventually approach functional languages? Was that something early on? Was that something as part of just taking a bunch of courseware about these different topics? How did yeah. the software part evolve alongside with the teaching of all? So back in the 80s, there weren't any courses, right? I think at the time, even, even the school didn't have computers. That was a couple of years later. And so I remember the early years, I mean, there was some, my dad bought me a computer, but that was after I'd actually gotten into programming. Interestingly, I got into programming hanging around the computer departments, department stores, where they had a lot of, back then in the 80s, they would have a lot of different computers set up to play with. So of course, back in the day, every computer that you would see in a department store would support basic. So I learned basic as a first language. And I don't, I don't recall how, but so, I mean, basic even then was a lot of different languages, depending on what computer you were on. So shortly thereafter, I got into C programming. I don't, I don't even recall how or why it was. It just seemed to be the hot thing at the moment back then and the thing to get into. So that was like, a, yeah, I guess I learned basic first. I learned a little bit of assembler. I learned C programming. I even wrote a book on C programming on, an, on Atari computers, also in the late 80s. So in Germany, there's uh, what you could call the national competition on programming or something like that for high school students. So that was something that they advertised at schools. My dad, being a teacher, brought that home and said, you should totally take part in that. So I ended up winning in 1986, I think, which brought me together with a lot of other young programmers. I mean, this was a rare thing back then. And so there were, no, there were very few among my friends who were programming. And so suddenly I met a lot of people who were into very different languages. So there was like a Lisp person, there was a Logo person, there was a Modula 2 person. And a bunch of us ended up writing a book together on computer graphics using C. But so even though that was on C, I got in touch with a lot of people that were just using a bunch of different languages and could explain why that was exciting to them or why that was something worth learning. And so I think that's how I got into sort of the mode of learning a lot of different languages in the, in the course of my career, even as a teenager. So it sounds like you managed to find the good group of people that kind of helped spark your interest in learning a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, yeah I was extremely lucky. So you take that, somehow stumbled across C, you said. How did you first stumble across functional programming languages? Was that relatively recent? Was that still pretty soon after your C, because I know some of the languages have been around for quite a while. It just depends on which ones you get exposed to when. Yeah, no, that was soon afterwards. So there was a Lisp person there, and there was some other person there who said, well, you can do anything on Lisp. And it's a, it's a, this is a cool thing to learn. And also at the time, somebody recommended like the classic, it's kind of a cliche, recommended me the classic book structure and interpretation of computer programs, which uses Scheme. And that really got me into the first stage of functional programming. I don't think they, I called it functional programming at the time, but of course that was what it was all about. And I didn't recognize it as something outlandishly special. And that was also, I think, the intro language at the, so I studied three different universities and the second one also used Scheme as an introductory language. So that, and I think then there was kind of a break up to the point where I finished my degree. I even finished my degree using Scheme. And then, again, I was very lucky here at the University of Tübingen to have an advisor who was heavily into functional programming. Peter Thiemann was kind of famous in functional programming circles, whom I shared an office with for a while. And he really got me into functional programming as a field and something that I should be interested in specifically. And then, yeah, I guess a couple of years followed where I did a lot of research doing functional programming. And then just talking pre-show, you also mentioned 
doing stuff in familiarity with Clojure, which makes sense from a Lisp perspective. But you mentioned Erlang. What were some of those other languages that you eventually got exposed to down the road that gives you that broad experience when you're talking about teaching things and learning things and actually playing around with your wide variety of consultancies that you do? I'm sure that you can't just take any specific language and put it on all those various kinds of platforms that you're talking about when you're consulting. What were some of the other things that you've been involved with and started learning? So Peter, for teaching, used a language called Hope, which is kind of forgotten now, but which is a language used in one of the great books on functional programming, which was a precursor to, I guess, Haskell. And back then, there was still around a language called Miranda, which was the precursor for Haskell these days. And then Peter got me into Haskell. So these were all things that we got into as part of our teaching. We also used Scheme, which I've been exposed to earlier. And also... Peter and I actually were working on our own design at the time. Peter also got me into ML, so we were hacking ML compilers for a while there, and, and OCaml, so we did a lot of stuff as part of our research. So we got to do that. I think that those were the main ones that were subjects of research at the time. And then Clojure, of course, is, some, is a fairly recent phenomenon. So as when I finally moved to industry, I think in 2003, I had to be more attuned to sort of the needs of industrial projects for the stuff that I was doing. And so eventually things, of course, things that ran on the JVM got interesting. So as part of the activity of my company, we do, so yeah, we've mentioned Erlang, so we've done Erlang projects. We got very interested in F-sharp when that came out. We have a number of projects in Scala and Clojure. So we're really all over the place. We even have an Elixir project. And being all over the place, what are some of those things that you've found as far as what you've taken from different languages? Because there's the functional core that all these languages share, but you've got a talk coming up, a code base that talks about concurrency. And concurrency is one style of things that changes across these languages and how concurrency works. You've got the pure versus the impure, where you've got the focus on pure and Haskell. The more you can kind of do whatever in Clojure, you'd like to try and write as much pure stuff in a scheme or a Clojure or a list, but you don't necessarily do it. You've got types, you've got everything else. At a certain point, when you pick one of these languages and maybe it gets back with your teaching, what are some of the core things that you've found that hold true for this across respective languages that you take and apply no matter what language it is? So I think there's two things. One of them really is immutability. And I think that's, I think it, took, it even took the functional programmers, even the Haskell programmers, it took a while to really understand the true importance and the humongous impact that it has on real world projects. So immutability is one thing. And that's, that has to be like the common denominator that makes the biggest difference in our projects. The other one is really that even though there's dynamically and statically typed languages in the mix, is that we always do some kind of type-based design. And so I think those would be the two common things. Other than that, you know, all those languages have very different strengths apart from these two core things, right? We try to take advantage of the specific strengths of the various languages as best as we can. And if those are the two common strengths, but each one has their own strengths, are there certain strengths that you kind of wish you had across all the languages? Or is there a way of thinking about if you're not necessarily pedantic or there's one true way that certain ways of thinking are nice and the idea of macros in a lisp or a scheme or something that a lot of people fall in love with and like if i could have these in any other language that would be awesome some people fall in love with types and actually aside from just thinking in types but having types what are some of those things that you found from all these different languages that kind of appeal to you if you could kind of pick a one true language that you could wave a magic wand and get some of these features out in addition to the immutability and at least thinking in types well so it's, it's definitely not static types but macros or syntactic abstraction, I think, is something that makes sense across the entire spectrum of functional languages. But few people understand it, I think. I mean, the, a lot of the pioneering work in syntactic abstraction has been done in the context of the scheme and racket languages, right? And they introduced things like, well, of course, the Lisp community sort of originated this idea that you could write macros in the language that you're also writing your programs in. And that is one huge thing. The other huge thing really is and scheme is the idea of hygiene. And then there's a couple of things that Racket refined about macros, how to make how to make macros play well with modularity and so on. And so macros are a great mechanism that is relevant for teaching, or is a common theme also in the teaching, is macros are a great mechanism for doing things systematically, right? 
because one thing that functional languages are great in is that they allow you to do abstraction, right? In very few but powerful different ways. Whereas in your classic object-oriented languages, you have so many different kinds of entities, right? You have methods and you have classes and whatever, you have values and you have types. And they all have different abstraction mechanisms or they don't have abstraction mechanisms at all. Whereas in a functional language, well, most functional languages, they have sort of the, the world of values and they have the world of syntax. And so it's pretty clear that you use regular functional abstraction when you're dealing with values. But really, Scheme and Racket allow you to use systematic programming when you abstract over syntax. And both this idea as an idea itself and the mechanisms that you need to make that actually happen is very, very poorly understood outside of the Scheme and Racket community. I mean, for example, the Haskell people, they have a whole bunch of hacks to solve the same kind of problems that Racket and Scheme solve with a very small number of very powerful mechanisms. And I think they still do not understand the full power that is behind those things and the things that you really want to do with them once you have those mechanisms at your disposal. And what are some of those mechanisms look like? Is that just the code as data or is there more to that than? It really is this idea. Well, there's, I mean, there's two ideas. There's first of all, just this idea of systematic abstraction, right? I would like to view software engineering as a systematic activity in that as you're trying to solve a problem, it is evident to you what kinds of mechanisms you should reach for in your language to solve your problem, right? And they also apply in a way that is easily understood and easily reproduced, right? Of course, every real problem is going to have thorny things, you know, that require a stroke of brilliance or something to do that. But for those other nitty-gritty construction parts that sort of correspond to architecture, you really want akin to architecture. You want to make sure that you're building a solid and that its principles are well understood. And so if you have syntactic abstraction problems, if you're trying to create a new language or if you're trying to do something like generic programming, then it's immediately evident in Scheme and Ragged what mechanism you reach for is you reach for its syntactic abstraction facility, which is its macros facility. And it's, it's very straightforward, right? The language has a very clear you know, guiding meta principle on how the syntax works. And then it's very clear how you apply macros to solve that problem. Whereas... I mean, Haskell, I guess, is the best example because, again, the community has been struggling with that for a long time. You know, there's half a dozen different metaprogramming libraries available. There's template Haskell, which allows you to do syntactic metaprogramming. But certain things are just not available. You don't have a proper concept of staging. You don't have, I think, it's still a problem to create new binding forms in Haskell. And with these metaprogramming libraries that you, or with these generic, I'm sorry, I should say generic programming libraries, that allow you to solve some metaprogramming problems in Haskell. If you have a problem, it's very difficult, unless you've written one of those libraries, to figure out which of those libraries you, you should use. And even experts can't give you advice that is easy to follow that will let you solve it. And so once you get to that point, you do what I like to call tinkering, right? As you try things out until things kind of work or you kind of despair that you weren't able to figure things out. And I think that is not what we should look for as functional programmers. I mean, nobody said that explicitly, but I think the assumption is since we're so principled, since functional programmers are so principled about their languages in many ways, right? That they should have a good formal foundation and that they should have whatever compositionality or things like that. Is There's significant corners around functional programming where the activity of programming itself is not principled and systematic even though the mechanisms that people reach for are, have been designed in very principled ways. And I think that's very unfortunate. That makes sense. And so we kind of covered your personal preferences and things you found when you're working in industry. You also mentioned you do a lot of teaching and you've taught with a lot of these languages. Do you want to elaborate on some of the things that you found from the teaching perspective that holds true, that helps people pick it up easier, that helps people think through these ways? I think you know, a lot of us functional programmers, we're in love with our tools, right? We love the languages that we use. We love the tooling. We love the little programs, the little neat, intricate problem the programs that we can write. And, of course, when we love something and we love teaching, you know, we want to teach what we love. So it makes a huge difference who you're talking to, right? And I've, of course, if you teach your friends or if you teach your fellow students or people who are like you, but if you teach for a longer amount of time, you ultimately encounter a lot of students who come from a different background than you do. 
and they might not have the same sensibilities as you do. And not everybody has to have like strong feelings of love for functional programming. And at that point, you come to realize that your students are different from you. And you have to take that into account as you teach. That is true no matter whether you do functional programming or teach any other kind of programming. And so when you get to that point, you have to put a little bit of distance between what you teach or between what you love and what you teach in order to get a perspective on what works well and what doesn't work well. Now, what we have to realize, so of course, if you love Haskell, a lot of people love Haskell, or if you love ML, a lot of people love ML or, or Camel or any other language or scheme for that matter. Of course, that's what you want to teach. And you think that because you love that language and because it works so well for you, it also has to be a great language for teaching. And that happens to not be true. Just because the needs of a beginning programmer are different from your needs. So I've done a lot of work with Matthias Felleisen's PLT group, who've developed Racket. I guess most people know that Racket was originally conceived as a development environment for teaching beginners. And what they did and what we've tried to do or what I've tried to do and, and the people I've worked with here is to take a hard look at what teaching works well and what doesn't. And we came to the conclusion that the functional languages that we all love to program with, they were designed with researchers in mind, sometimes with professional programmers in mind. They were designed with people in mind like us. They were not designed uh, with beginning programmers in mind. And that's why they usually work not very well. And that even includes things like there was a structure and interpretation of computer programs book which uses a scheme. And so a lot of people, I think, read that and we thought, oh, this is such a great book. And it's, you know, it's, it's this wonderful book and it reads so well. And it uses a scheme and it was even written for introductory programming. So it has to be, scheme has to be this wonderful tool for teaching introductory computing. And it just is not. And, and so I think that's the fundamental insight that it took me a lot of years to come by. And I think that's what people should realize. And so everybody is so committed to, because their language is great at whatever it is that they do with it, it has to be this great tool for teaching, and that just happens to not be true. So we're very much aligned with what the Racket people and the PLT team found out about programming, is that really if you want to be effective at teaching, is that you need to have languages specifically designed for teaching, and you also need tooling specifically designed for teaching, and the, that you also need a pedagogy that is less focused on like your brilliant little composed functional program, but that really needs to be focused on teachable things, and those have to be systematic programming techniques. And that just looks very different from what a lot of sort of traditional teaching, even function programming looks like. If I may add one more thing, it's, I did a lot of research and published a couple of papers even, and wrote a book on our experience teaching at the university level, where you have students who've not been programming before. And, you know, when I entered industry and I taught professional programmers how to do functional programming, I initially thought that it would be sufficient since these people already know, they already know what a real programming language for professionals look like. I could just apply the same pedagogic principles to, um, you know, the language of their choice. Somebody would order whatever F-sharp training or Scala training or whatever training. And I figured I could just use that and you apply the same pedagogic principles and design sort of teaching around that. And that kind of worked okay, but what worked even better was just going through the exact same stuff that I did with the beginning programmers, just going through it very, very quickly. And then, so for example, if somebody orders, you know, three-day training in Haskell or in Scala or in F-sharp from us, at least our recommendation is that we do two days general introduction to functional programming using the entire thing that we did for beginning students. That includes the specific teaching languages, the specific teaching tooling, the Dr. Racket programming environment. And then after those two days, we move to their language of choice. And that happens to work unbelievably well, uh, in my experience, much better than using whatever language it is that they ordered from day one. And at a high level, what are some of those fundamental principles that you introduce, whether or not it's students new to programming or professionals who have been doing it for a while? Are there any things that might stick around that as listeners to this, when they try and make the sales to their coworkers or to other people or go out and evangelize, some people get caught up in types. Some people get caught up in immutability, like you said. Some people get caught up in various things. Are there any things that work well that are good starting points that we should focus on when we're trying to go share our excitement, regardless of what language we're working in? Yeah, kind of, you got me kind of at excitement. So I try to keep excitement out of it, actually. I've never been able 
to sort of convince people to use functional programming through my excitement. And maybe that's just me. I'd much rather, and what's worked much better for me is to just teach people to do things, right? To be able to write programs on their own. And then, you know, they take care of the excitement themselves. I don't have to worry about that. So I have lots of stories to tell, but that is, so if you look at what the PLT group produces, they produce an approach called Program by Design. There's a webpage that you can look for that, that has that. And they also have a big book, uh, they have a similar book um, that you can also get online. And as I hinted at earlier, it really, so the teaching approach really focuses on doing things systematically. So the activity of writing a program is structured by what the PLT people call a design recipe. The design recipe always takes the form. You have like a certain sequence of steps in that you do a data analysis, you do a short description of a program, you write what's called a contract, a little signature for your function, you give it a name, you write a little template for your function, and you write tests somewhere in there and you test your function. So you always go through the same sequence of steps when you design a program. And the individual steps are driven by the structure of the data. And you might say they're driven. Uh, so this is very much a types-based approach in that you try to figure out the types of things and do an analysis of that. And Again, this focuses on doing things systematically. So the central part of this is that you do something called a data analysis of your problem space. So you have certain entities in your problem statement. You figure out how you talk about those things, where you might say, classic example is always like there's animals on the Texas highway. And you say, well, an animal on the Texas highway, it is either an armadillo or it's a rattlesnake or it's a mouse. And so if you sort of try to structure your language in a certain way where you say, well, this thing is either this or that or that, then that determines the concept that you should use to model your data. In this case, it's something that they call mixed data. The statically typed people might call it some types or something like that. That doesn't really matter. So there's an entire systematic taxonomy around designing types or designing data to match the information in your problem statement. And I think if you come to it as a professional programmer, you find this material unbelievably pedantic and it doesn't have, you don't feel the same excitement and you don't feel the same love that you might have felt when you read a book like Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs or one of the other great books on functional programming that exists. So it's really focused on getting you to write programs on your own successfully. And it spends very little effort on getting you excited about that process. Right? So that is the common element. And so that really, when you apply that as a teacher, it kind of sounds self-evident, but if you really, really focus on, well, can I, you know, in this example that I'm using, teach my students, can I really cast every step of the solution in terms of the design recipes or whatever systematic approach I've been teaching people? Can I name every single step? Can I really go back and say, well, you should now do this step because it's the step that I taught you. And, you know, if you see things through that lens, you realize that a lot of pro books on programming, and that includes most books on functional programming, really sort of teach by, I like to call it teaching by osmosis, in that they give you a bunch of examples, and they go, say, kind of go, go forth, right, and now write your own programs. And, you know, that works for, like, brilliant people, but it does not work for beginning programmers. So if your goal is to teach a lot of people about functional programming, it really is focusing on doing things systematically and, if you will, pedantically. And the more I've been teaching, the more I've found that, it, that this also happens to be an approach that works for, well for seasoned professional programmers. It works well for very, very smart and brilliant students as well, for some reason. I'm not sure I understand all of those reasons, but I've had a lot of experience doing that. So that's the common theme. And the excitement was more about, we tend to go get excited about this and want to share it. And we get wrapped up in the excitement. So it's how do we step back and not just do excitement? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I was still at the university, at one point we were, you know, we felt we should be able to do better sort of the next year, right? We just came out of doing one year of teaching the intro course and we figured we should be able to do better on the next one, right? And as we sat there talking around about it, we felt that all the excitement that we've been trying to convey really came to nothing as far as the students were concerned. You know, student evaluations were pretty good, but you, there was still, you know, why are they teaching us these strange languages? You know, I like Java much better. Why can't I assign to a variable, blah, blah, blah. So it didn't seem to impact that much at all. And so we consciously scaled that back the next year. And we tried to put a lot more distance between the students and us. So, I mean, this isn't specifically about functional programming. And I would spend zero amount of time telling them how great this thing was that we were teaching them. 
right? Because, but, you know, of course, in the years before, I was like, yeah, we're going to teach you this different thing, but it's wonderful. And it's the lambda calculus, and we love it. And it's, it's like the greatest thing you've ever seen. And it just, I wouldn't get through with that at all. So we said next year, we would say, well, here's this thing, right? We don't care if you like it or not, right? You just do your thing. If you don't do your thing, you're not going to get credit. So focus on getting credit. And we would put on all kinds of funny rules that they would have to follow in order to get credit that would force them to do what we thought was right for them, right? We would spend zero time on motivation. And two funny things happen is, first of all, performance went significantly up. So this is well documented. And when time came for student evaluation, people, first of all, they liked us just as well as they had before, even though we hadn't worried about that. And every single bit of criticism about functional programming had gone away by that point. And so I don't, I don't have a good coherent explanation for that. But what I really think has happened is that we really empowered students to solve difficult problems on their own. And so they got excited because of what we'd enabled them to do rather than sort of grudgingly accepting that they had to learn about this thing because somebody else is excited and tries to impart that excitement on them. So I've seen that, maybe maybe it's a cultural thing, I've seen that in many different contexts, though, is that really the excitement was something that ultimately worked against me. And so nowadays, I could just go say monad, or whatever it is, right, and let my audience take care of the excitement for themselves. And then one of the other things you touched on was the fact that professionally, you're not concerned whether it's statically typed or dynamically typed. And part of that ties in with the teaching, where you focus on the types. How have you found focusing on the types, regardless of what that is, and both professionally and teaching, when you say you're talking about the things on a Texas road as either an armadillo, a rattlesnake, or a mouse? Thinking about that, have you found that that is different between the statically typed languages that kind of push that on you and the dynamically typed languages when they don't do it, when you're trying to get that idea of thinking into types? So one thing I did mention was that the teaching languages happen to be dynamically typed for various reasons. I mean, one of them is that they really allow a completely straightforward sort of translation of the systematic approach into code. And the other is that through the the way the programming environment works is that we're able to get better feedback. So in professional work, I mean, it's pretty obvious to people that if they have the statically typed language, they're going to take advantage of those static types to do certain things, right? good friend of mine, Connor McBride, has said, well, you know, type static typing allows you to sort of, you know, tilt gravity in a way that the correct program is downhill, which I think is a great way to describe it. So you use that to your advantage, and you use it to catch certain bugs and whatever, and you use it to shape your design. What I think a lot of people from the statically type world don't understand is that you also can use the absence of static types to your advantage. In particular, is that even though the types that correspond to your program, they're in your mind, and in a dynamically typed language, the type system that supports those types is also in your mind. You don't have to worry about whether it fits the model that your programming language imposes on you. And that is a, that is a great and liberating thing. So your design might be typed, but even if your design is typed, a dynamically typed language might be better at supporting the implementation of that design than a statically typed language is. And then we're getting close to our time. I want to make sure we tease your upcoming code mesh because that looks interesting as well. But before we get into different ideas of concurrency and some of those balances you found there that you're going to be elaborating on further in your code mesh talk, is there anything that we need to go back and revisit or anything that we haven't elaborated upon more or things that you've thought about in the meantime as we've been discussing that you want to bring up? No, no, I don't think so. So getting into some of the teases of your talk about concurrent ML, looking at that, you also cite that it's not related to the ML languages, but you talk about differences in concurrency and thinking about some of these differences. So types are one thing that a lot of these languages have different approaches to. But when you talk about core async, Haskell's inherent concurrency as they tout it, because if Things are pure. It doesn't matter which route they get evaluated in. So certain things are concurrent at the micro level versus the macro level versus the Erlang side. What's some of the concurrency things that you found across all these different languages? What's common and what's different to some extent? 
Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, concurrency kind of by nature is about effects, right? Otherwise, you might talk about parallelism where things are transparent to things running at the same time. But with concurrency, you have programs where you're interested really in the concurrent behavior of your programs. And you can only observe that if there's effects going on. So I think we've come a long way in the past couple of years, right, is that everybody seems to understand now that traditional concurrent programming with logs or semaphores or condition variables or things like that is just something that scales very poorly and is very prone to mistakes and it gives you poor performance and has all kinds of problems. So parallelism and concurrency, even though they're separate things, there's a lot of overlap in sort of the programming mechanisms that we use to implement them. And I think we've, we've come to understand that on the parallelism side, we really want something like some kind of data flow paradigm to talk about what goes on. And on the concurrency side, we've come to understand that some kind of message passing mechanism work well for expressing concurrency and that they work much better than sort of more primitive things like blocks or whatever it is. Functional programming has been tremendously helpful because if you're talking about messages and you do that in a context where you have multiple cores, then of course you want to have immutable data. You don't want your message that you've sent to somebody else accidentally modified and then depend on the time that the recipient looks at it. And there's various other things that are enabled by immutability. So Erlang, for example, uses that to great advantage in that it makes the distributed setting very similar to the sort of the one machine setting. And of course, if you send a message to a different machine, then inherently you have to copy the data. And that only works well if that data is immutable. So I think that's where we're at, is that everybody understands that message passing is like a good thing. On the other hand, there's surprisingly different views on how that should work. And what is important there? And with concurrent ML specifically, I think that's one of the great designs in concurrent programming that's mostly been forgotten. So that was that's my motivation to talk about that at CodeMesh. So can we elaborate on what concurrent ML is? Since your kind of summary talks about it's from the late 1980s, and it's and you just said it's mostly been forgotten. So for anybody, probably a majority of people who haven't heard of it, what is concurrent ML, and what's special about the way concurrency plays in there? So in concurrent ML, the central idea is one that's called an event, or I, I like to call it a rendezvous, is in that you have synchronization happening between two different threads in your program. And a rendezvous is, is an abstract data type that is going to produce a value. So you have a data type in there that says event of A or rendezvous of A that will produce a value of type A. And concurrent ML very much focuses on composition of rendezvous. So you might have said something where you say, well, you know, I'm waiting. I have a rendezvous produces an A, and then immediately we have something like a map function that will produce where you have a function that goes from A to B, will give you a B. You have things where you say, well, I have this one thing, and then I want to happen, then I want some other thing to happen. You have things like selective communication where you say, well, I have several rendezvous that might produce an A, and I'm really interested in the first one of those that happens. So there's an algebra of rendezvous in concurrent ML that is extremely elegant and easy to understand and pleasant to deal with. So that is one central idea in concurrent ML is its focus on composition. The other focus is on synchronous communication. So there's various ways of implementing a rendezvous, but the one that you use most of the time is a communication channel where you send a value on one end and one thread, you send a value, you put it into the channel, it comes out the other end. And this is a synchronous thing in that both the send and the receive will have to meet at the rendezvous and happen at the same time. And so concurrent ML really is this thing that if you, when you program with it, you realize it's extremely elegant. It's, it allows you to really approach concurrent programming systematically, and it is unbelievably pleasant. It's like Christmas when you've been programming with locks and, and semaphores and things like that before. And it allows you to be very, very systematic about the construction of your programs. So that's um, with what I've said before. <laughs> that is some of the appeal of concurrent ML that a lot of other modern systems that implement message passing they just don't share. And without actually understanding this at a deeper level, it almost sounds like the concept of tasks or promises taking a little bit to a further extreme where yeah. you're going to say, I'm going to do something and eventually I will get this result. But it sounds like implicit in there is the synchronous communication that both these things have to time together and then we'll proceed. Or am I misunderstanding the orchestration and the coordination of how those two parts that interact produce that rendezvous? So futures fit in neatly in the concurrent ML framework. But the problem that you have is 
in your typical concurrent library for your language, you're going to have multiple things that you can block on, right? Concurrency is usually about waiting for things where either of those things can take an indefinite amount of time until it happens. So you might be interested in communication arriving over a socket, over a file server. You have a timeout in a concurrent setting. You're both interested in the sends and the receives. You might be interested when a future actually arrives, right? When the value arrives in the future, things like that. In most languages, those things are all separate, right? In that they might compose in their own little world, they might compose a little bit, but they don't compose with each other. In a concurrent ML, you would like turn extracting the value from a future, you would turn that into a rendezvous, and then you would be able to compose it with all kinds of other things. So I think where you can usually see that in a language is that, I mean, all of these languages have some kind of selective communication mechanism in that you can say, well, you know, I have seven things that I'm waiting and, and I'm really interested in one of those seven things happening, right? There might be messages from seven different sources coming or seven different kinds of messages. And I'm interested in the first one that matches my criterion. And usually it's restricted to receiving messages and timeouts. So Erlang, for example, has like a fixed syntax for doing those things, right? Receiving messages and timeouts. And it doesn't, there's nothing else you could do, right? You can't have anything else that you have to do. You have to put into its, its framework or processes, which is composed very well in Erlang. And if you have like a future in Java, it doesn't compose, it doesn't combine with the other selective communication mechanisms. And once again, it might not, not seem a big deal because most of the time what you're, you know, in those languages, what you do most of the time is indeed you're waiting for seven different reads plus a timeout and none of them happens. But if you have, again, at your disposal, the ability to compose arbitrary things in selective communication and in various other ways, then suddenly there's things you can do with those mechanisms right, that you don't think about. So, so one of my favorite dictums is, is by Wittgenstein, who says, the limits of your language are the limits of your world, in that suddenly you're able to think different programs because you're in this paradigm of concurrent ML. And if you've seen that once, then you know a lot of other concurrent programming paradigms that are all the rage right now, like the actor paradigm or whatever, seem very restrictive. And you said it's like Christmas and getting this present in this glowing aura as you start to use this, if you haven't used it before, when everything fits together nicely. If you do all these different languages and you're applying these different languages at different points in industry, is this something that you're able to take advantage of and you're able to fold these ideas and you figured out how to wrap some of this stuff? Or there's places where you're like, okay, this part might be concurrent ML or how are you fitting this in? Or is this a, you're always wishing for concurrent ML whenever you're doing some of this concurrency stuff when you're going back to industry. What's that balance of seeing this Christmas present and then working with everything else that you're working and there are different concurrency stories? Yeah, good point. So we always wish for concurrent ML to the point where so I think we've written two implementations of concurrent ML now ourselves. And I think we're on the cusp of writing another, actually. So, so there's that. As I said, right, concurrent ML allows you to think about your programs, how, about how to structure concurrent programs in a certain way. And you can apply that even, so we have a fair amount of closure projects, and closure has this core async thing, which is unfortunately not directly based on concurrent ML. It should be, but based on Go routines and concurrent sequential processes. And we usually apply the same sort of design methodology that we've learned using concurrent ML there. But as you might guess, we often chafe against the limitations of core async. And so arguably that having known concurrent ML sometimes makes, makes us unhappier than we could be if we didn't know about that. And I wasn't sure how much of that was being able to take in some of these ideas and wrap them into the extent that people will say that any sufficiently large distributed program is eventually going to re-implement half of Erlang. And yeah. any other system is going to try and become a half implementational list for metaprogramming and things like that. How much of this was, well, we're trying to do our best at taking any one of these languages and putting a library kind of functionality into this that gives us the concurrent ML view versus we split this off and we actually go write certain chunks in concurrent ML and use multiple languages. So I'm not sure I follow. I didn't know how much you were trying to take the concurrent ML ideas and try and write them in the language that you're using so you can take advantage of that versus split off and put certain parts in concurrent, like write a program in concurrent ML 
if that's its own language, and saying, okay, this part of the problem domain, we're going to have our own little service that handles some of this stuff for the concurrent ML because it gets super hairy and we just want that part to live there. No, no. Okay, so we always use whatever native mechanisms the language has to offer, but it's kind of analogous to the situation of teaching programming systematically, right? Is in that it, first of all, develops your way of thinking about the program, and then you apply it to different languages, even if they sometimes force you to take a little more roundabout route to get to your program, right? And I guess the same is true here, in that ML has taught us how to think about concurrent programs, and we then try to realize the ideas that we have in our minds in whatever mechanism is available to the extent that that's possible. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And I, again, not really understanding what concurrent ML was, if that was the language or a way of thinking about it, or a little bit of both. It is confusing. Concurrent ML is called concurrent ML because originally it was very much an ML-based, not even a library. It was very deeply embedded into the big ML implementation at the time in the standard ML of New Jersey. So you couldn't even call it a library, even though on the surface it looks like a library because it's a bunch of ML signatures and functors and structures. But it turns out that you can just view it as a library. So in fact, I think most existing concurrent ML implementations are part. So there's one that is in Racket, for example. I built one many years ago for Scheme 48, which is a scheme system that I guess I still maintain to some degree. We put a concurrent ML implementation in a little-known functional language called Star. The company that did Star was one of our clients at the time. So it's really an idea that you can put into any language, generally, into any functional language anyway. So even though it's concurrent ML, but that's kind of sticks, especially because I should say that, right? There's a book on concurrent ML, which is called Concurrent ML, which is one of the great books on concurrent programming, best book on concurrent programming that I know, even because it also explains a lot of other concepts. And so it just, I think we should just resign ourselves to that name, even though it mentions a language other than the one that we're typically working in. That makes sense. And you actually started touching on my next question, which was resources to better understand some of these ideas in concurrent ML. So that concurrent ML book is a good one. Were there any other places to go people? Again, I don't know if that's a online or that's a, you got to go try and track this down from a used bookstore. So no, 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 that's very much, that's very much a current book. So I think published at Cambridge University Press that you can, that you just, I think it's a paper book mostly. I don't know if there's an ebook version. I certainly have the paper version of that that you should all go and get. If you feel you want to preview the concepts, then concurrent ML was the subject of the PhD thesis of its author, John Reppy. I think you can get that PhD thesis online and, and probably has like half the book in there or an early version of half the book in there. And so you can preview that, but I very much recommend, especially because the book goes into much more breadth as thesis really focuses on concurrent ML itself, whereas the book focuses on all kinds of other concurrent programming constructs and puts them into a taxonomy with the help of concurrent ML itself. And so, yeah, I recommend you get the book. Great, great book. One of the, if you want like a dozen books on programming and you only have space for a dozen books on programming, then that, that's one that you should get. And I wasn't sure because just, you never know with some of these ideas that have been around for a while, if that book is still nice and available or you got to go find it from a used college campus bookstore or library kind of thing and hope you, one of the people who can get it. Yeah. And I think there's a new edition in the works, which might come out one of these days if it hasn't. And then, as we mentioned, you're also going to be covering this a little bit at an upcoming Code Mesh talk. So I'm sure people can watch for those videos when they come out if they're not there. But are there any other places people can find you, any other talks that you've given relatively recently or any upcoming presentations or conferences you're going to besides Code Mesh that people can look for more either past or upcoming stuff or just come up and say, hey, Matt, like I heard you, I'm interested in learning more or talking to you. Well, you can always follow me on Twitter. So I'm Spurpson on Twitter, if you're on Twitter. So usually I go to like one big English-speaking conference, which is uh, the International Conference on Functional Programming. This year is kind of an oddity, isn't that I'm also at CodeMesh, and I was recently at a software craftsmanship conference in London. But I actually find that out from just looking at my Twitter feed, I guess. And so I most I hang around a lot of German developer conferences because there needs to be somebody there to cover functional programming, and that is usually me. And if you happen to be German, you listen to this, then you can Google 
funktionale Programmierung, and you will come to a blog that we run together with the sister company. And then it has a list of all upcoming talks given by authors of that blog. And that's mostly me, I think, right now at upcoming events. And if you're, can, can I do like one shameless plug? Absolutely. Do whatever shameless plugs you need to do. So we run a wonderful developer conference in Berlin in February called Bob. So if you go to bobconf with a k.de, then we will, we will come to that page. And it generally focuses on what's best in programming, but what's best in programming, a lot of that is functional programming. So there's a strong focus on functional programming. And there's also videos. So we, we always put videos of all the talks on YouTube if you can't be there. And it's followed by a closure conference right on the next day, also in Berlin. And there's cross discounts that you can get. So that's if you're if you're into this and if you if you want to talk to me specifically, then that would be a great place to come to. And I know I've announced BobConf and the closure conference and the announcements before. I'm sure we'll get them in the announcements coming up soon. Again, it's coming up in February. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I'm familiar with it. I've heard good things about it, but haven't made the chance to make it myself. But yeah, everything I've heard sounds like BobConf is a pretty neat conference to go watch and attend. So are there any other places for people to follow you online? You mentioned Twitter. You mentioned your company's site, I believe, is the one you mentioned with the upcoming conference appearances? I mean, you can check my homepage, but I kind of update that with respect to talks. I kind of update that infrequently. But that has, if you, I mean, from my webpage, if you just Google my name, then you will come to a page called DeinProgramm.de. I'm afraid some of that is in German, but that will give you a lot more background material, in particular papers that I've written and links to some presentations that I've written and that I've given that might give you a better idea. And if not, that page also has my email address. And if you have more questions or if you want to know what's up, then just send me an email. And I'm always happy to, to receive feedback and to help people out. And I'll get all those links added to the show notes. And so people can follow you along and keep up to date and maybe even pull out their favorite translation app, even if yeah. they can't read German to figure out what's going on. Yeah, interestingly, which has been very shocking to me, but of course, very gratifying. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Mike, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Lots of insights about teaching and going to definitely have to check out some stuff about concurrent ML to figure out how that kind of concurrency is working and maybe start to understand how I chafe against some of these problems that I didn't even know I was chafing against. So look forward to finding out more about some of these topics, seeing your upcoming presentations and learning more. So thank you for taking your time to join me today and giving me some of those insights. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.